If I told you about this podcast, what would I say? Would I bring up the princes from Ohio and Jersey? Or that this podcast is not intended for younger listeners? Those under 18 should not listen to this week's fairy tale. The views expressed do not reflect the opinions of the kingdoms of these princes. This is a story of two dudes and the double feature that consumed them. Welcome to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, the show in which a couple of guys watch a couple of movies and, well, yeah, it's just, it, it's not, I don't think it's getting better. <laughs> the, the intro's just the same, I guess, every week. He does this just off the cuff, folks, every week. He doesn't have a prepared uh, joke for this. It's just you know, happens. You know, hold on. What? I think about it at least for a second. It just, it's every idea is bad. That's all. <laughs> at the very least, I put the homework in. That's like that's like saying if, if Batman had prep time, he would only need one second to prep uh, against Superman. That's all the prep time Batman needs is one second. And then he thinks about all the bad ideas that he could use to fight Superman. See, I'm not Batman, thankfully. I still have my parents. <laughs> Ugh. Oh man, I would not want to like watch your origin story eighty five thousand times. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, you know, neither would I. <laughs> Mostly just because I feel like that'd be really traumatizing. Just like I get it, my parents died in an alley. I understand. Quit showing it to me. It's like at the edge of tomorrow, but for the Batman origin story. Oh, that would kill him. <laughs> the, the groundhog day procedure that would kill him anyways i am dude one richard dude two joe how are you by the way this week how you been uh just fine it's like any other week i gotta get groceries soon but uh i just had me some shake shack and that was uh that was pretty darn good honestly and uh, i really needed that but i really need to get groceries need to get you know uh you know, cold cuts and uh, more drinks and that kind of thing. How about you? I'm doing all right. I do want to talk about something real quick at the top here, if you'll indulge me. If you'll if you'll give me the pleasure of speaking about something that I think is important to both of us, and that is the the movie theater experience, the 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 movie theater itself, because. A lot of the locations, um, a lot of the big chains, uh, some of the smaller chains are starting to open up now because, you know, the, the truth of the matter is they need money. And the last thing I'm sure we want is for movie theaters to be obliterated because of uh, this unfortunate situation that we find ourselves in. But I do think it is something important to talk about. So if, if you'll let me. Sure. So, okay. Uh, movie theaters, right? Ideally, especially right now, it's not the greatest thing. It's not the greatest decision to be making as far as like going to see a movie. It's just, especially the normal way of that we would do it right now. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, movies since the start of the pandemic have been getting pushed, have been getting released uh, to streaming, have been getting 
just taken off the schedule altogether. Poor New Mutants uh, has has been delayed enough. <laughs> and, you know, that's still getting a theater release. I know that. Like, they kept their, their release date. I think uh, the director actually came forward confirming a theory that you told me about uh, the contract thing, that they kind of have to. Oh, did he did, did he, he did he come out and say say something like that? I I think I think I believe I read somewhere that he did say that it was a contract thing. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, and I know I hear this a lot online because unfortunately I find myself on social media a lot. But people are always asking to put things on streaming. Put the movie on streaming if you can't put I've it seen in this theaters. A lot. Do you understand how much money they would make if they put a two hundred million dollar production? They make. Zero. Literally nothing. They make make nothing, okay? And the other thing with that, too, is a number of movies that get released, there are a lot of contracts and things that have to happen. People get a percentage of the movie's profits and what it makes in theaters. For example, not New Mutants, but Christopher Nolan's Tenet, apparently he gets 20% of the movie's gross or profit. I don't know which one exactly they said, but he gets a lot of money. Ba- you know, yeah. based on how much tenant makes, twenty percent is a lot for one person. This is one person, okay? <laughs> and so, New Mutants probably has something, maybe not to that extent, but there are probably there might be some actor contracts where some of them might get a profit uh, off of you know a percentage of the movie. I know Sandra Bullock when she did Gravity, I think she had took a pay cut as far as like the upfront stuff to make money. On the back back end, like you know, after it all said and done with the profits, and she made a pretty penny off of the money uh, that was made from Gravity. Mm-hmm. It's that's and that's the big thing. Like that's mostly part of the reason I feel like a lot of these movies are not getting released streaming because there is that contract, there is that money to be made from a theatrical release, and it's just. Plus, I feel like if every movie does just immediately get released to streaming, that would just further, like, dig the knife into the movie theater a little bit, you know what I mean? Not just that, but even if you put something on premium VOD, they've already proven that you do not make nearly as much money on premium VOD as you do at the theater. Because in some instances, like, the cuts between the theater and the studios, I know some people say it's, like, usually 50-50, but sometimes for a big movie, for a big movie it could be as much as, like, 80 or 90% goes to the studio, you know? Yes. And they make a lot of money in theaters. Like, listen, if, if Avengers was released on PVOD, it would not make three almost $3 billion. I can tell you that much. Oh, no. It, it, would, it, not, it would not. To, they would have to charge an obscene amount to get even close, but even then, it would discourage people from even considering it. Actually, that takes us to uh, the recent deal that happened with AMC Theaters and uh, Universal. You heard about this, right? Yeah, um, so essentially, more or less, didn't they just shorten the release window as far as theatrical release to digital release? Yeah, so this is, again, this is only between AMC and Universal, and the big problem with this deal so far is that the other theaters don't like this at all. You know, if this was no. made by the collective, like the collective of all the major theater chains or whatever, it would be a different story. But basically, AMC made this deal with um, Universal. I'm going to pull up the details real quick. So the, they shortened the theatrical window to 17 days. Now, typically, the theatrical window can be is as long as like three months, typically for a movie. 
And sometimes, and sometimes it depends on how well the movie does as well. So that's like, true. If the movie it does really well, they'll keep it as long as they can. It does decently, it'll be gone within like a couple months. And that's also part of the deal too. Is Universal can determine, you know, if they want to extend a movie, like say Jurassic World, right? If it's doing pretty well in theaters, yeah, they're going to expand it a, cu- a couple weekends more, or Fast and Furious, or Minions, uh, Despicable Me, and all all that stuff that they that they have. But basically, the theatrical window shortened from three months to 17 days. And basically, after that, it goes to premium video on demand. So, like, remember when Invisible Man came back to, you know, your home at Voodoo? Essentially what they're doing now, more or less, just, like, all these Universal movies, like the Blumhouse movies, has what I've been seeing a lot. $20 rental, you don't buy it, you just rent it. Yeah, and it's for like twenty, like twenty bucks, which is what it's been. Like I remember, I, you could rent Onward for twenty bucks, Scoob for twenty bucks, and they Universal would not be able to release it for like the three to six dollar rental window until like three months after the movie came out in theaters, from what I read. So basically, that part of it is tip is like the typical model, you know. And some people are thinking, well, this makes sense because most movies make. A majority of their money in their first two weekend, two or three weekends of release. You know, like Avengers Endgame made a billion dollars in its opening weekend alone worldwide. You know, um, and then like after, like for most movies, not all movies, but most movies after that two to three weekend window, it kind of like tapers off a bit to the point where it's it's almost it's almost not worth it to keep it in theaters anymore. So people think, oh, well, that makes sense. But the problem is, if most people know that they can just watch it at home in, like, three weeks, why are you going to pay sometimes $20 a head just to go see it in theaters when you can go watch it from the comfort of your own home for 20 bucks flat or whatever and just call it a day, you know? Exactly. That's a massive uh, situation that's going on. To turn it over a little bit, so there's obviously the conversation of health. You know, movie theaters, uh, essentially this, like, Petri dish of awful, uh, just, like, as an in-general thing. You know, you have all these people in an enclosed space, and just germs would spread a lot easier. Um, There's obviously that big mask debate that happened about whether or not you should wear a mask. The AMC kind of kicked up. Now it's more or less states are just mandating masks, so regardless of what the company had stated... You know, I do believe they all now require masks, which is nice, from at least the last time I read something about it. I, I will say this much, just to kind of, like, cap this off. I personally don't think opening... Like, I appreciate that they're putting the effort in to, to make the safety measures, to make it okay to go back. But it just doesn't seem like the greatest decision, especially if nothing's coming out for, for some time and things keep getting pushed. And... The, the virus keeps surging. It just doesn't seem like the greatest idea to be opening up the theater right now, especially if it feels like it's for nothing. Like, it almost makes it like a catch-22 no matter what you do. It's mm-hmm. going to be a bad decision. But if you do open it, which a lot of them do, because, again, it's people's livelihoods. People depend on the business aspect of the movie theater and for just so that they can live it's it's just a necessity of their lives 
And so in that regard, if you are opening, again, make sure everything's safe. Make sure ev- make sure everybody's working 110%. And probably the biggest thing that I'm going to say about this, be nice to the people working. Be exceptionally nice and respectful to the people working at the movie theater. Because here's the thing, they have to put themselves in this in danger. They have to put themselves out there so that you... The person who's volunteering to go to the movie theater can go watch a movie. So don't be a jerk. You know, just don't. Seriously. Don't be a jerk in general. Be respectful. But especially right now, be exceptionally kind to the people working at the movie theater. They don't need any of your nonsense. Yeah, very very well uh, very well said, man. I think I, I'll just second that. I can't really top any of that. Thank you. But going off of that... Uh, we did say we were going to talk about two movies, and I think it's about about darn time we started talking about our first one. I agree. This is a uh, an interesting pick, and this might be slightly controversial only because we didn't choose a different version of it. That we're going to talk about Beauty and the Beast. All right, and I just need to tell you, I am so mad because there's no like I was promised there was singing in this movie. Bell was not Emma Watson. What is going on? And then it's all in French and black and white. What is happening in this movie? I just, I. Richard. What? Richard. What? Richard. What? You're thinking of the Bill Condon Beauty and the Beast, which is a remake of the 90s Best Picture nominee Beauty and the Beast, which in and of itself took influences from the movie we watched, the 1946 Beauty and the Beast. Hold up. I hit my microphone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Character. <clears throat> Hold up. <laughs> you mean to tell me <laughs> I it's I, I ruined it. It's done. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. Ooh. I wanted to do a thing, but I failed miserably. <laughs> but yes, we're talking about the original, the OG. Beauty and the Beast. Uh, was it from 1946? 46. 46. Tell us a little bit about this. This is, was probably, it definitely is, the most famous version of Beauty and the Beast, as far as directly being called Beauty and the Beast, before the, any of the Disney versions came out. Like we said, 1946, directed by Jean Cocteau, who was not only a filmmaker, but he was also a poet. And that very much influences his other films. I've only seen one other film of his, and it is very similar in the way it's presented. What was it? Uh, Orpheus, which also stars uh, the leading man oh. in the movie, Jean Marais. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. Actually, rewatching this makes me want to rewatch Orpheus, so maybe I'll talk about that a little we're, bit next we're, week. We're busy right now. You could watch that later. We're talking about this movie not being the 2017 musical yeah. extravaganza. <laughs> I think it's important to say that this was way before, you know, the Disney Renaissance, of course. And this was only a few years after uh, Disney started making feature films. This was made in a post-World War II France. Last week, we talked about Seven Samurai, how that was made in a post-World War II Japan. This is very very much a post-World War II French movie. World War II ended in 1945, okay? Nazis surrendered literally a year before a, a year before and I think the movie started production I think it started production four months after 
the Nazis surrendered. One of the big things with this movie too is it's in black and white. Mm -hmm. Jean Cocteau wanted it to be in color, but color, especially back then, was way more expensive than black and white. Jean Cocteau had to get creative with his filmmaking choices in this movie, so that very much impacts the visual style of this version of Beauty and the Beast. If you ever see like art house films, this is very much an art house film beauty and the beast if you've ever i don't know if you've ever heard of the painter uh gustav dorain or the artist gustav dorain i have maybe i've seen his work but maybe not his name his, his influence is definitely impactful on cinema as well even though he died much before you know the movies like king kong was influenced by gustav dorain when you look at like the way the jungle is like there's like light in the background and then there's like sort of a darker for you know foreground right kind of a similar approach in beauty and the beast i was actually flicker uh flipping through images on wikipedia of dorain's work and some of the those shots felt straight out of this movie felt like things that were straight out of this movie that, that that's very important like because a lot of his work's also in black and white going off of that this is obviously a fairy tale right tale is all this time we got a, be a beast who was a prince blah 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 listen you got so close there we can't say you know because it's trademarked by disney as we did yeah last we can't episode. say that you you were so close i got so scared i am scared out of my mind anyway no this is genuinely a fairy like this is you know what it made me think of Terry Gilliam, Ooh. because Terry Gilliam, when he makes his movies, you know, he's one of those directors that when you see his work at first glance, you don't really know what's happening, but it's because there's like an internal logic that he's working with and, it, and it's clearly, you know, his own world. And so with this particular movie, you know, it works within the logic of its own making and it's, it's logical, but it's its own logic. And so the whole time I'm watching it, I was kind of like going, this makes me think of like Time Bandits, or this makes me think of uh, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, or, or any of those movies that in Gilliam's catalog, it is in his filmography, if you will, uh, which are very similar in that. To a much lesser degree, I think it was much easier for me to grasp on to what was happening in Beauty and the Beast versus some of the stuff that, that Gilliam likes to do in his movies that just make you go like, okay... <laughs> like she's getting plastic surgery by literally having her face pulled right by <laughs> by jim broadband in brazil but but no that's kind of what it made me think of to a lesser extent which it was it was kind of cool like the way that it, it didn't like while it does kind of like obviously let you know that it's a fairy tale the story just kind of plays out within its world and so things just make sense within the context of the story so i liked that yeah and i think what's important too is the way they establish that tone with the intro. Like, first off, the intro is done, like, we have, like, a chalkboard, you have everybody, like, they're writing the credits of the movie, and it looks like they're on a film set, too. They had a fantastic chalk budget. They really had a good chalk budget. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. Well, no, it's okay. The sort of disclaimer, it's not really a disclaimer, it's sort of a disclaimer, but not really. It's kind of saying, look... You it know, feels a little like a disclaimer. Yeah, like, it's basically kind of saying, you know, the disclaimer, this is the English translation, mind you, so it goes sort of like this. Children believe what we tell You're them. You're not going to do it in French? No. No, that'd be <laughs> bad for all of us and the listeners. Children believe what we tell them. They have complete faith in us. 
They believe that a rose plucked from a garden can plunge a family into conflict. They believe that the hands of a human beast will smoke when he slays a victim, and that this will cause him shame when a young maiden takes up residence in his home. They believe a thousand other simple things. I ask of you a little of this childlike simplicity, sympathy, excuse me, and to bring us luck, let me speak four truly magic words, childhood's open sesame, once upon a time. That is the movie right there. That's beautiful, by the way. I, that's actually really beautiful. You know, no, because like you look at the movie, like the like the central conflict is started a lot of it because Belle's dad was like, "Oh, I got to get my daughter a rose." He plucks it from a garden, and it it throws the family completely off. Now the beast just pops out, and it's like it's like. It's like they stole a social security card or something like that. Ridiculous. It's like, ah, oh, you took one of my roses. <laughs> you son of a gun, you. That is my favorite rose. Why would you take that? <laughs> it's often literal. And the other thing, too, with this movie is that sometimes when, like, a fantastical thing happens in, in certain instances in movies, like, it feels like they sort of really, like, over-address it. One of my favorite sequences in the movie, and you might have missed it when you saw it, is when he's carrying, uh, when the beast is carrying Belle through a room, and the dress changes. Yes. As he as he does it, I looked away for a second, and it was so like I didn't even realize it till you pointed it out, and I was like, "Wait, what? Oh, that's nice." I was like, "That's kind of fun," <laughs> and I missed it. Of course, when when Belle like appears in like a room with a glove, like she pop almost looks like she pops out of a hole or something all of it is like practical effects work and all that but also i have to mention the cinematography in this movie especially in the scenes where they're, they're inside the castle in like the dining hall or like the main entrance uh, entrance foyer of the castle because you know it's a set you know they don't have a lot of money to work with so they put little small details and things like they got a fireplace that looks nice and a table but there's fog sometimes fog and smoke and lights the statues are actual people their mouths are smoking or their noses are smoking or whatever mm -hmm. it really creates like this idea of a castle in your mind it's not like in other adaptations of the story where you see every square inch of the beast castle and i'm not saying that's a bad thing but they had to work with the budget that they had with this movie and i think it's extremely effective it's actually really cool like i just remember like like seeing them walk into the into the room maybe it, to some degree it's just the effects of the the restoration and just kind of like how when you're watching like a like a movie from the 90s or like whenever i watch hocus pocus i can clearly see <laughs> bet midler on on a broom with wires just like just coming off of her Yes. Yep. Like obviously, mm -hmm. you watch the movie, and admittedly, it does throw you off because it is just a door, or it is just a fireplace in like kind of a black backdrop. At the same time, they make it work. Like you don't think about it. Like it's it throws you off at first, but then as it plays out, you don't think about it all that much because you're so focused on everything else that's happening and just kind of like the imaginative nature of the way they they did do it. Like it, you're, it's impressive, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about I think about that. I think about the way they use. I, I think about the candelabras. That's such a wonderful image with the the arms holding the candelabras. That has been used a lot. A lot. I mean, it's... <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera and the Bill Condon version, just the arms just holding. Like, I just want to say real quick about like the the uh, the the set pieces, the set piece actors, if you will. I hope they got paid the most because they they just have to stand there. 
they have to have smoke held in their mouths for an X amount of time until they can go. <laughs> or, like, they have to be, like, yep. painted and, like, camouflaged. Like, as cool as an effect that is, I hope they got paid. Paid well, I mean. No, me too. Me too. I, I, I hope that. I'm just trying to think. Oh, but speaking of that, it's kind of like a, a direct connection to the Disney one. Because what's a major component in the Disney one? The talking inanimate objects and, and lumiere like the ones in, in this movie don't talk no but they have very human attributes like the table has an arm that pours you a glass of a cup of tea and you got the uh the different statues at different points in the movie mm-hmm. like you know on like the fireplace and, and, and in bell's room and whatnot like the creepiest ones are in bell's room where they just they're just smiling sometimes yeah. like they're, they're just looking really at her out by that they're just, just like they're just like looking at her like she's just trying to take a nap and then you just see like just like just her like smile I, you can't see it i'm doing the face just <laughs> just like a mona lisa kind of like <laughs> like you're just like listen it's a very neutral I'm or to weird take a nap okay <laughs> back off one thing i have to mention too is the beast and how he differs from the disney version right because the disney version we meet him, he's very much a brute, very animalistic. Like, he still speaks and all that, but he's, like, because of animation and because of the performance, brilliant performance Robbie Benson gives, it's much more uh, of an angry, almost an angry animal. He's got temper issues, really. Whereas, like, yeah. the one in... And he he has an arc yeah, in the Disney he one. He does. I was gonna say, but in the new... In, 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 well, not the new one. Huh. Dan Stevens, I love you. But <laughs> in the old one, um, he's more, like... But like the, the the beast in the original one is more uh, akin to like kind of like he's oh woe is me you know he's more prim proper prince like he's got this big old fan behind uh, behind his head he looks like um, a jeweled up version of William Shakespeare you know he's he's more prim proper but he's more like depressed. Like he doesn't, he's not really angry all that much. He's more ashamed of his of his current state. Yeah. Like when when he the, the scene we talk about the smoking hands after he slays an animal, and he's ashamed. He doesn't want Bell to Bell to see this at all, and he feels much more like a like a philosopher or poet, which makes sense given that Jean Cocteau, as I was saying to you early in the episode, was a poet, mm-hmm. and that definitely plays into the portrayal of the beast, and also plays into. The way this movie's equivalent of Gaston is. Okay, so I remember you telling me about how the actor that plays the the quote-unquote the Gaston of this movie, or what's his name, like Adavant or Avedant or something? Uh, Avenant. Avenant, I think. Something like that. I remember you telling me that it was the same actor who plays the Beast. Spoiler alert. But the whole time when you said that, I thought it was the same character. And so the whole time I'm like... There's going to be some twist. There's going to be some reveal at the end of the story. There's going to be some some kind of thing that happens where we see, like, the Beast turn into Gaston, or whatever his name was, and it was going to be like, huh? And while there is a kind of twist, it still kind of threw me off, because I still don't really know what happened. He changes back into a prince, okay? But it just so happens that the prince looks like, yo, know, the other guy. And then the other guy get mm-hmm. you explain it because I don't know what happened. Well, here here's the deal. Again, we we talk about this thing of like of the childlike you know childlike logic you know the world of poetry and all that. Look to me, it makes more sense now that I've rewatched this so many times because Bell, I think on some level, does want Avenant. Right. You know, he is a good looking guy. I mean, Jean Marais was a good looking dude. Yeah. Wait, how did you describe? 
though how how did you describe him though when we watched the movie when we watched it did you, you described him as a young looking peter capaldi no um what was that was that what i described him as i think so i thought it was a different um no oh, you know what maybe in in some scenes they might yes yes i Which did is say fine. that peter in capaldi. some scenes like if when he tilted his head he looked like <laughs> i could see doctor who going back to my point with the beast the prince and avenant bell on some level wants avenant because he is a human he's a good looking guy but he's also not the best guy he gambles away money he drinks a lot and all that stuff but then there's the beast the beast is a beast <laughs> and he he's he's very he's pit he's pitiful she pities the beast she does but the beast is way more respectful of her aside from like basically kidnapping her that that's a big thing yeah. with these beauty and the beast uh, stories is the kidnapping it's, it's, yeah <laughs> that aside he treats her much better than a lot of the other people in her life do but the way bell is in this she's almost like a cinderella figure where she, she does is. all the chores yeah. all the cleaning for her her sisters and and brother and the beast is like you know you deserve all of this you know and there's one point in the movie where she's kneeling trying to talk to him and he's just like no you shouldn't be kneeling to me it's all this over over the top dramatic stuff but i think it works within the logic of it so going back to that i'm sorry it's, it's such a, a th there's so many things to go with this but yeah no there is the prince is sort of the best of both avenant and the beast he don't look like a cat but at least you know he isn't a total jerk there's that okay Alright. Avenant was a jerk and was trying to steal the treasure that the beast had. Guess what? Boop! Arrow turned into a beast. There you go. Alright, I can get behind that. <laughs> That's all I got. I, I, I was I was wor so worried that you were going to be like, That's stupid. <laughs> I'm going to bump this down to, to like three and a half stars on Letterboxd. Like, screw this movie! <laughs> I already... I already. Joey's explanation took away brain cells. Like, <laughs> I hate him. How dare he? I was he? like, I quit. You have to get a new co new co-host. I'm done. I will say this. So obviously, at the at the beginning of the movie, with that dis with, with like I guess that disclaimer, it does feel a little bit like an excuse to kind of be like, okay, so this movie is not going to be entire, not going to make entire sense in some degree. So just so you know, think of it like this. You know, it's it's like it's like a weird context to give before watching a movie, which seems weird to me, but. Again, like it's something that worked better within the context of of the movie. Whereas in any other situation, I probably would have just been like, "Listen, you don't need to tell me how I should feel about this movie going into it. I I want to watch it for however I want to watch it." That's fair. I, I could I could see that. I think it yeah, works for this movie, I but do too. yeah, it's it was for other movies. It would feel like a lazy excuse. Like, can you imagine like watching like Joker? or something and todd phillips just like just pretty please just just have the logic that you're 15 years old watching this <laughs> guys just think of it if you're 15 years old just watch it like that it's not an incel story okay <laughs> arthur flex totally chad okay so watch it like that and it's all good okay oh though i do though on that note i do feel like he has made some excuses weirdly enough and that's coming from someone that likes joker but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't. He doesn't put it in the movie, though. No, no. But he does it everywhere else. He does it everywhere else, so you can't avoid it. So it might as well be in the movie. I guess we live in a society. The beast lived in a society. No. And then, and then he and Bell floated away. And that's the other thing I love too is that they just float away. Yeah. Going back to that topic of like things just being 
poetic and maybe not 100% explained. They just kind of float off, you know, into the air like they're going to heaven right? or some nonsense. Kind of like kind of like Bruce Wayne in BVS floating. Wait, no, no never mind. That, that's not a good example. What are we talking about again? Beauty of the Beast? Oh, no. But seriously, I do like that. I do like that that's like this kind of hurrah, beautiful ending that they just smoke in the air. They're flying like, oh, that's that is a be- that is beautiful. Again, a lot there's some moves that this movie makes that in other in other instances I would probably I would say it wouldn't work, but they make it work. Yeah, and you know, look, it, it's it's I think it's for me personally, I think it's one of the most accessible art house films. I don't know if I'd recommend it to everyone, but it's 90 minutes, it's about 90 minutes. You can watch an HBO Max and you're familiar with the story of Beauty and the Beast, so I think it's interesting to watch a version that kind of influenced the one that you know and love today and other other such stories and even other modern day filmmakers uh, cite this as a huge huge influence in, in the work of, uh, of of John Cocteau. I think what he presents here is a really just like the fant- the fantastic almost sort of brought into the real world the way it's presented, but it still has has that almost childlike right. quality. And it's very poetic and um, I think quite quite beautiful and definitely one of my personal one of my personal favorite movies. And I also like the Disney movie for the record. <laughs> just just so so you know, we like both. Okay. I was excited to watch it because it was one of those movies that, you know, it was on my uh, criterion um, list, my wish list for movies to pick up because I wanted to check it out. Mm. So it was nice to get that chance to do that now. I, I like that this podcast has become an excuse for you to like introduce me to new Criterion movies that I'll have to buy when the sale's going on, i.e. right now. Uh, <laughs> no, I did buy five. We're not sponsored by Barnes & Noble or uh, We Criterion. could be. Oh <laughs> Listen, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make something work, okay? But no, I actually really liked it. It's, it is, it, it, like you said, it is. it does feel more accessible than most uh, films within its genre, within, like, the kind of art house type movies. And again, the familiarity helps. And also for being, like, an older movie, like, it still has, like, kind of wonder, wonderful qualities and, like, things that they do that are really cool that make you go, like, oh, that's kind of inventive. So I liked it. I, 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 am, I am a fan. As the kids say, we stan, even though I hate that word because it's, oh, it just makes no sense to me. Well, it does, but that's a whole other conversation. I'm sorry. You heard it here. First, folks, Richard Stans, Jean Cocteau, and we're going to take a quick break, leaving you with that thought, and when we come back, we're going to talk about another film, another sort of story of beauty and beast, not the Disney one. Stay tuned. Do you notice that I added a little bit of a uh, at the end of that one? A little bit of uh, no. I I did. 
Okay. I did. It's did gonna be like, interesting to to listen to listen to that as I'm editing. <laughs> it was fine. It was just fine. I accept. Oh. I accept you, no matter what variation of "and we're back" that you do. <laughs> it's, it, I wanted it to be great. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> there was no care on your face whatsoever. <laughs> That's why I relate to, to to Buster Keaton so much is that his face he he didn't need to, to do much with it but he just it's just like the stone face and it's just like just, just <laughs> stare just stare like what is going on <laughs> you know I can totally see that now that you say that we should totally do a Buster Keaton movie for a future two dudes one double feature though I think I think you'd get a kick out of uh, out of his stuff I can I can get down with that. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. I mean, hell, our next movie that we're talking about has some silent movie like elements to it, you know. So I'm just saying, I'd be down. Well, what movie are we talking about next? Well, we are talking about the 2017 Best Picture winning, yes, winning. I sounded so much like Charlie Sheen there. I'm so sorry. It's a, it's a dead meme, but I'm doing it. The Shape of Water. It was 2018. Yeah. Actually. Either way, it won Best Picture. I don't care what year it was. It won Best Picture 2018, was released in 2017. There you go. It's directed by the great, the amazing, the wonderful Mr. Guillermo del Toro, starring probably my favorite actress right now it just just because we're constantly like praising her miss sally hawkins also octavia spencer richard jenkins and uh one of the greatest greatest modern monsters of our generation and just in general mr doug jones that is quite a cast right there honestly really really a great ensemble with this movie genuinely honestly like you got like all those guys you got michael shannon you have I, I never i never remember his name but he was in boardwalk empire he plays bob in the movie michael stuhlbarg yes him i never remember his name yeah but i love him i love him so much now he's good he's very good so yeah we know this is a guillermo del toro movie you and i are both big guillermo del toro fans you especially are a huge del toro fan since since Blade Two and Hellboy, I've been a fan of this guy. It's interesting too because like you look at his filmography, and I mean up until Pan's Labyrinth, you didn't really expect this guy to be Oscar caliber. Not that that diminishes him in any way, but he is not just a director; he's an artist. He's a storyteller, and that's just one of the amazing like things about him is he's not like your typical run of the mill. Like, admittedly, when I first saw him, I kind of thought he was, like, the Mexican Tim Burton a little bit. Because <laughs> they had kind of, like, a similar aesthetic, similar... Like, they're both visual directors. They both work fairy tales. They both clearly have a love for Universal Monsters, you know, and, and a lot of the similar interests. But at the same time, like, Del Toro is so is so much more than most any director in his cal of of his caliber like he's one of if not the greatest in my opinion if edgar wright didn't exist guillermo del toro would be my favorite director and you know I, I think the tim burton like especially early on in his career i think the tim burton comparison isn't entirely off 
Honestly, now that I think about like some of his earlier um, earlier films, like like Edward Scissorhands is a big one that comes to mind a lot because it is kind of like similar to The Shape of Water. It is like a riff on a classic Universal monster movie that also happens to be a romance, like somewhat of a Beauty and the Beast kind of. Literally, if we didn't do the the original Beauty and the Beast, I would have suggested Edward Scissorhands in The Shape of Water. Yeah, and actually, uh, our our good friend of the show, Andrew Gifford. Was was actually thinking that same uh, that same thought. He was messaging me about that today. Actually, <laughs> love you, Gif. Always think about you. Love you too, man. With Guillermo del Toro and his filmography, you know, one of the big things with this is, of course, the modern fairy tale or an adult fairy tale, especially with this one. Oh yeah, that's like that's his his whole thing. Like he's not like your. I guess your Tolkien's or your George R. R. Martin's or Peter Jackson or any of these guys who he's not like a typical fantasy movie director. He is straight up a modern fairy tale director. And how he does it is that he tells fairy tales for modern audiences. He tells fairy tales for adult audiences. And so like a simple fairy tale is like a movie or like a story like, like, uh, Little Red Riding Hood or Hansel and Gretel that are seriously just don't talk to strangers. They teach simple, basic lessons to children, sometimes through somewhat grotesque, but typically scary, but kind of like magical and whimsical type storytelling. You know, you like like the grim fairy tale type stuff. Guillermo del Toro, while definitely channeling that, while definitely doing that with his films, focuses more on adult audiences. So his films deal with more adult subject matters. And they're not like metaphors per se they're they're more like literal so like in this film there's dealings with racism and there's dealings with disabilities and homosexuality and obviously just like the 50s in general and and so it's those aesthetics that make it like again like a 50 not a 50s but like an adult fairy tale in a way and that's something he does in a lot of his movies like pan's labyrinth is another one that comes to mind that that does that does a lot of those similar things yeah i mean when i first saw the movie back in 2017 the first movie i did think of was pan's labyrinth and it made me think of his spanish-speaking work Mm -hmm. you know not as mainstream not as you know box office savvy or or whatever but it it has this like almost like you know he does great movies that are blockbusters anyway pacific rim's like one of my in my top like it's between that or pan's labyrinth is my favorite uh, del toro movie that's the kind of person that i am oh i agree i love giant robots and giant monsters and i love uh i love the pale man and, and the fawn and the beautiful storytelling like that but with shape of water the, it, it calls back to other like archetypes that he's dealt with in the past so in pan's labyrinth you have like a friendly doctor you have a friendly scientist doctor character in Shape of Water, the Michael Stuhlbarg character, Dimitri, or Bob, Bob Stetler. And you have the Michael Shannon. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I always forget Hoff his Stetler. last name. And you, of course, the one that merely made me think of was Michael Shannon's character of Strickland reminded me of the captain. Yes. From the, the brutal, mm. brutal captain from Pan's Labyrinth. I'm like, wait a minute. This feels like the Amer. In some ways, it felt like the Americanized version of Pan's Labyrinth. Though some of the themes I would say are li- are a little different, of Obviously. course, you know, Shape of Water being a love story, Pan's Labyrinth being more of a 
almost like a commentary on f the way we view fairy tales and story. Like I watched Pan's Labyrinth in college as part of a story, a class called The Power of Story. That was like the first thing we did on day one was watch uh, Pan's Labyrinth. That's a smart class, and it was my favorite class ever. My favorite college class. Going back to when you first saw The Shape of Water, do you do you remember this scenario, sir? Huh? Do you? Do you remember this story? Okay. Huh? So do you? <sighs> All right, so I he's it, it, all these years. It's still it's still it it, it genuinely bugs me still. It's been like three years. <laughs> it's not that much time. So <laughs> some people would say that's way too much time. But anyway, I live in New Jersey, so I'm very close to New York. I can take a train ride to go see a Broadway show or go to the museum or you know sometimes I'll go go to the film forum in New York. But with December of 2017, they had, because this was when Pan's Labyrinth was literally, <laughs> not Pan's Labyrinth, sorry, Shape of Water was literally playing on like a handful of screens in the country. Limited release. Okay, not many screens at this point. And they had a special, limited release, they had a special Q&A. With who? Who was it? An AMC who was it I was with? going to. Guillermo del Toro. With Guillermo del Toro, Doug Jones, you Octavia Spencer, and Michael Stuhlbarg. Because here's the thing. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this man didn't have the decency to ask his buddy, who loves Guillermo del Toro, to come see it with him. And he didn't even think to ask. And then you know what he did? You know what he did? As like a, like a, like a, a retribute, like a, like a, like, listen, here, I'll do this for him to see if it's okay. He invited me to see 2001 A Space Odyssey, a movie I napped through with him. Which is fine, because I liked it. We saw it in 70mm. That was a lot of fun, even though we did take it out. But that's beside the point. I also took you to Disney. But anyway. Oh, oh we got to bring that card in. <laughs> you jerk. So we were talking about the the, the fairy tale nature of, of The Shape of Water. And this is ba we, we chose this movie to pair with um, Beauty and the Beast, because it is a Beauty and the Beast story. Plain and simple. It's got differences. But at, at its core, it's, you know, Sally Hawkins, who's a beautiful woman, and Doug Jones, who's a beastly fish man, and they fall in love. And it's, that's, that's the, basic, the basic gist of it. And the thing is, too, like, because that's all people see, especially because it is R-rated and because it does deal with more sexual nature, you know, a lot of people tend to, like, steer away from it. But trust me when I say this, this is a movie worth watching, even though it does have intercourse with a fish man. I just want to throw that out there. In comparison to other Beauty and the Beast stories, it's a much more tender, ro much more tender, much more consensual romance than in other versions. The whole point of it is like the beautiful nature of romance and the interconnected nature of romance. Like even just that simple, simple shot of of Eliza, Sally Hawkins character, you know, just kind of like you know chilling on the bus on her way to work and this is after she had fallen in love with the amphibian man and you just see those two like raindrops like kind of circling each other and becoming one and that that shot alone similar to what we were saying with seven samurai in the last episode how that one scene kind of fully encapsulates the point of the movie that fully encapsulates the point of this the shape of water being you know you know the way love is you know it's it's all around you it's malleable it's it's unknowing it's chaotic it's thrilling but it's scary and it's it's just that that metaphor of you know the shape of water and the shape of water happens to be the shape of a heart huh, interesting you're welcome now take me to see del toro <laughs> 
you know what at some point when it's safe and if he ever decides to go back to the east coast or whatever we'll we'll make an attempt uh so you got that on record you heard it here first (laughs) (laughs) so with i'm sorry it's it's all right so with shape of water as we were talking about like you're talking about the the two drops of water i want to talk about the visuals because with the guillermo del toro movie it's it's just Guillermo del Toro movies are bursting at the seams with images that help convey the story, help convey theme, character, and all that. He's the prime example. Like I was talking about, and we've talked about a couple of times, this idea of style being substance. Style is substance. This idea that you can use the visual aspect, whether it's set design, camera work, or whatever, you know, like a silent film, which silent films are an inspiration for a lot of this movie, especially given the fact the main character doesn't speak because she's a mute just you know some of the simple stuff in the movie just to fully kind of artistically like bring to life the point the meaning and the various themes of the movie even the color the way that he uses color like the typical color palette in the film is like the kind of typical sci-fi water aqua kind of color palette like you have uh blues teals greens uh yellows but then every now and then you'll get like stark reds, which represents romance. Like when uh, Eliza first kind of uh, makes love with the amphibian man, and then she's just draped in red. She's full on red, fully in love at that point. Whereas like before you see like she wears a red headband or red shoes, but now it's just like, boom, full on red. So it's just, it's stuff like that, that fully like just shows that nothing is put in the frame arbitrarily nothing is put in the frame without some kind of idea even just this is something i didn't even realize i think i might have heard about it before but i didn't realize it at first and now i can't unsee it because i point and i pointed out to you um the wall in eliza's apartment which is water damaged like the whole apartment's water damaged which is just amazing in its own right one of the walls um they intentionally painted that kind of famous tsunami painting that you see like that japanese tsunami painting Right, And they just kept painting over and over and over until it was literally gone, but you still saw, like, the shape of it. Like, you saw, like, the water, like, the shape of the water, no pun intended, in the wall. So just that kind of, like, detail alone is is brilliant, honestly. And it just shows, again, that he's an artist. Guillermo del Toro is an artist and a storyteller. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And this, the other Beauty and the Beast doesn't deal with this kind of stuff because it was just it was made in France, you know, whatever. Been no big deal. And it took place in another another time period. It's it French. wasn't trying to comment on <laughs> France. Comment on certain up <laughs> France. Uh <laughs> other things. But with this movie in particular, you know, this is a movie about minorities and about, you know, people who are sort of at especially at the time in the in the movie takes place, which I think is like the fifties, they're considered like social outcasts mm-hmm. or minorities you know, well, cause you have your main, your main character can't, your main, your main heroine can't speak. You have a, a, a sexy freaky fish guy. And I mean, he's sexy, but he's also a freaky fish guy. And you have Octavia Spencer in, in the movie as, um, as Zelda and, you know, as a black, black woman, you know, obviously that, I mean, today still, there's many, many issues, but Especially back then, too, so much, like, mm-hmm. so many terrible things going on uh, to the black community. And you have uh, Richard Jenkins' character, who is gay. 
it's interesting um, the way the movie approaches uh, the story that it's trying to tell in the world in the world that it's being that it's set in. While it is very much a fairy tale, and while it very much is fantastical, and it continues that even in some of the more mundane elements of it, it's a movie that feels like a period piece, like one of those period movies that you would see in theaters where it's made about a time period that reflects the current state of the world. So, like, you know, admittedly, like, this this movie, I hate to get into politics, but like we said in the last episode, you know, art is political a lot of the times. This movie very much feels like a post-Trump world. You know, this, like, super divisive, down the middle, a lot of hate, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of that kind of, like, kind of thing going on in the in uh in the world right now and so it feels a lot like the 50s when you know you had white people only colored people only like drinking fountains for example and of course richard jenkins character giles just you know basically living alone and miserable with his cats um because he's too afraid to like put himself out there and his fears somewhat feel validated because there's that whole subplot with him and the, the absolute jerk at the pie shop um, where, you know, he wants, he clearly likes him, but then like he tries to express himself and the guy's just like, ew, like, dude, get away. Like, you know? And so it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's one of those movies that like a good period drama takes that, that reflection element and applies it to the story. Yeah, you're. You know what? That's a. It's. It, that's perfectly. That's pretty much perfect. That's perfectly well said. With um, in, in regards to how it reflects on and comments on our our current state of affairs, I want to talk about the amphibian man for a bit. Mm, Doug Jones. Uh, Doug Jones. What an impressive like performance, but also use of creature suit and also CGI enhancements. We were talking about last week with Kubo and the two strings how. Yes, it's stop motion, but they have CG enhancements to just plus it a little bit. Not to overtake it or anything like that. Not to replace it completely. Just to enhance things. And that's definitely present with the Amphibian Man. But one of the things I've heard time and time again, and one of the big challenges of the Amphibian Man is, he is an animal. Yes. and But he also has to act like a leading man as well. The way he carries himself. Like, there's a shot... Where it's one of the next time, one of the like the second or third time or whatever that Eliza meets him, and the way he leans his arm on the side of his uh, of his little like tub chamber, you know, I'm like that's like so it almost feels like like right out of like a Humphrey Bogart movie or like a classic Hollywood um, scene, right? But at the same time, you know, unlo- I I think about the Beast in the other movie where he's just like, oh, I am so ashamed that I ate I ate this deer. You know, and then the amphibian man eats a cat, he eats a cat, and yeah, it's sad that the cat dies, but we acknowledge that the amphibian man has needs, and he needs to eat cats. Like Alf. <laughs> like Alf. <laughs> oh my god, I didn't even think of that, now it's in my head. Oh, uh, just, just, uh, just Sally Hawkins and Alf, just like, hey, Sally! I don't, I can't do it, Alf, I'm sorry. But, um, oh my god. <laughs> I don't, I've never even seen it, but I know who Alf is. But no, what I was going to say, like, what I find interesting about the Amphibian Man versus a lot of the other, like, beasts in this scenario is that he almost feels like the reverse in so many ways. 
to the typical beast character you get in this narrative. For one, you know, typically the the Belle character is the one kidnapped. You know, she's the one, you know, being like locked away. And this one, it's uh, it's him. He 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 was a river god being worshipped in the Amazon, and they scooped him up for scientific research so they can get people into space, mm-hmm. which is a whole uh, just another theme we'll talk about probably. And then, uh, you know, that's how Eliza meets him because she works at a government facility, and so that's how she has that interaction with him. So that's a reverse. And then also, while he is intentionally made to be like beautiful, both from a hum- from a human standpoint, but also just from a standpoint of just like a fish monster, he's not a prince. He wasn't anything else prior. He's he's more than just like a like a like a cr- like a amphibian creature that swims in the water. He's got he's he is a god essentially, but he he doesn't he didn't turn into something and then go back to something else. Yeah, he's not he's not cursed like the other ones like the other no, characters are. And it and you could argue too as far as like a physical tra- transformation because usually in these stories like the last one we talked about. The beast is the one that transforms into right. you know, beauty's ideal figure, you know, or or whatever. In, in this, nobody may, has like a huge outward change. It's just that, like, I, I have to say, her her gills activate at the end of the movie. Um, <laughs> but no, that's a great point. I didn't even think of that. But <laughs> gills activate. <sighs> It's like Animorphs, basically. Like, Sally Hawkins is like an Animorph. <laughs> oh my god, can we have that cover? Can we make Netflix, that a thing? Netflix, <laughs> eight-episode Animorph series with Sally Hawkins now. Make it happen, and we'll sponsor you. <laughs> or the other way around, really. Good gravy. Um But no, that's a great point. I didn't even think of that. That, that, that she's the one, again, again, the reversal. That, you know, she's the one that changes at the end as opposed to him that's cool i didn't even think of that wow um but i also i really want to talk about i want you because you were mentioning this to me too the idea of the man of the future and how in any other movie the michael shannon character would probably be the hero well yeah because like the whole the whole premise for the shape of water came about because guillermo del toro um, when he saw the creature from the Black Lagoon, had this weird idea that the creature and the woman in the film would end up together. You know, with that like there'd be a romance there. And that's literally where it all stemmed from. And so the idea of a typical monster movie, especially a typical monster movie, like think of The Blob. Think of Steve McQueen from The Blob. He He's the quintessential, like, hero, manly, tough guy that fights the blob, saves the day, the end of story. With The Shape of Water, it's the reversal of that. It's, you know, you see that a couple of times, like, in, like, the classic Beauty and the Beast and, like, with Gaston on the, in the Disney movie, where in any other circumstance, like, you were, like, when we, I remember one time we watched that and you brought up a good point that uh, essentially Gaston's Prince Charming is that, that idea that he would be Prince Charming, but because he's a despicable person... He's the villain, and the same is with uh, Strickland's character, uh, Michael Shannon, or <laughs> the other way around, Michael Shannon's character, Strickland, in the film, pardon me, the quintessential tough, manly, dominant man of the 50s. You know, he's got the perfect family, 
He has a nice job. He wears a suit. He's got a nice chiseled jaw. He he's God fearing. He he believes ma- men first, women second. You know that kind of typical fifties version of a man, a successful man. Honestly, honestly, I was thinking about this. You could have like taken if you adjust, adjusted things a little bit. It could have been like a scene right out of Carousel of Progress when you're in his house with the with the family, right? Yes, we're yes. in the fantastic fifties, and things couldn't be, be are better than ever. I got this car, and it's what is it? It's a teal car. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then Michael Shannon just goes, "No, no, no! A man washes his hands before or after. <laughs> he washes it both times. It shows a weakness." <laughs> what a weirdo, man! What a weird, what a weirdo! But one thing I, what, but like the crazy thing is, like with that character. You, you know, he kind of is the representation of everything else in that time period. This idea, like similar to now, this idea of the future, this idea of technology and getting the best things. Like with us, it's iPhones or, you know, new social media platforms on the Internet or whatever Elon Musk is doing right now. But, you know, in the 50s, it was Cadillacs. It was photographs instead of paintings. It was TV and TV. Notice yes. Notice with with television, and they they sometimes flip through channels in like um, with Giles and Eliza when, when they're watching stuff. But a lot of the time they're watching classic movies, yes, and, and such. Whereas when you watch when you see um, Strickland's place, whenever they they have like TV or where they're talking about things, it's mo- it's more contemporary to that to that specific time period. Yes. Or another example that like like with characters sort of sticking with like the past or, or, or whatever is with Giles because he is sort of like a commercial artist and he mm. has like, he has this beautiful painting uh, for like a Jello advertisement, which is by the way, fun. It's called back later in the movie because it's the Jello advert with the fat, with like the, the, the all American family. Right. And then yes. later in the movie, right. You have that, you have that scene when, when Strickland goes home, he, you know, he's, he's, his fingers are rotting because they were they got bitten off earlier in the movie and they had to sew them back on and it's just not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his his beautiful blonde housewife prepared him this this Jello while his kids are playing with toys in front of the TV. They're watching freaking Gilligan in a I don't I don't know what show, but it was the actor from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> it seems like the all American typical happy family, and he is miserable. Mm-hmm. Like he is just like, ugh. like he's so like just not in the right mindset but it's just it's just funny that like that moment is called back in such a way like that but yeah like the painting the, the it's it's so beautiful even the fact that they use red jello which again going back to the to the to the color red being a romantic color and then they stifle it they say no we want green we don't want yellow right or we, we don't want red pardon me we want green and then they just completely dismiss him by saying we're gonna go with a photograph or we're going with something you know, we're going with this. And so it's like he, like Giles character just kept getting strung along the whole time. Like, you know, we're going to use you. It's going to be fine. And they don't. And again, it's just that, that idea of just kind of like, not to quote Kylo Ren, but killing the past. If you have to. Mm-hmm. Right. Even just the two, like kind of central, like, I guess, male characters with the, the amphibian man and Strickland, you know, the amphibian man is a representation of the past. He's a god. He's a creature from from centuries ago. 
Whereas Strickland is as even as the 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 Cadillac tells him, "You are the man of the future. This car is for you." Right. So yeah, they really do work a lot with that kind of like, like moving too fast into the future to the point where you forget where you forget some of the great things about the past and some of the ways we did things in the past. Like we've talked about, like with animation, you know, the idea that CGI animation, like Pixar style style animation is the normal now. We don't really get hand-drawn animation anymore. As awesome as that would be, we don't get it anymore. One of the big things you were talking about, because you were exploring a lot of the bonus features, you have really like studied this movie the last couple of days, this idea of the three characters, the three characters as one. Can you can you care to explain that to the uh, the audience? So this is this was the one thing, especially in our last viewing, that I really wanted to look at because when Guillermo del Toro was describing Giles, Zelda, and Eliza, he described them as one character, not as three separate characters. Which anyone else would just look like, okay, that's Eliza, that's Giles. And that's um, Zelda. But as you watch the movie with that concept in mind, you do kind of see to a certain degree that concept come to life a little bit. Like you see, like obviously Eliza, she doesn't talk. So she's kind of the face, essentially. She's she is the character, more or less. And then you have Giles, who's the more like artistic side the more um, it's kind of like like the apartment building that they live in. They live above a movie theater and they live in essentially what was once bit like a big kind of grand room that got divided into two apartments. And you notice that because of that connecting arch kind of uh, window, uh, the way you kind of look at it, especially the way Del Toro described it is uh, like left hemisphere, right hemisphere of the brain. And it makes even more sense because from our perspective in the right hemisphere, when we see Giles, he's an artist. He's a creative. He almost feels like a proper representation of the right hemisphere of the brain. And then when we when we see Zelda, she's kind of that like she uh, it, it almost feels like she's the persona of how we are when we're at work, like the like the professionalism, you know, like the why aren't you doing your job? And then of course complaining about, you know, stuff that goes on in the world and in our lives, but also just in general and just trying to like get through the day like that and the thing is like these characters typically stick to that one more or less that one note approach so they they kind of fully represent that one thing so while i'm still because i think it's kind of like a gnarly sort of high concept i'm still kind of exploring it i'm starting to see it more and i'm kind of fascinated by it that this was something that like that was inherently there yeah, because I remember when you first brought it up to me, it, it like completely threw me off as if it was like, it was almost as if somebody was talking about a completely different movie. Right. And because I just, I think even if you didn't know that, I think it's still, the movie works out great anyway. Oh yeah, I no. mean, because I think the three, the three personalities that you have, I mean, Sally Hawkins is excellent in this. Um, Richard Jenkins, break, he'll, he breaks your he, heart. Oh, he is he's so, so good. good. And Octavia Spencer is a gem. hundred 110%. But like one of one of my favorite scenes, and this was this was the scene that they featured, I think, at the Academy Awards when he was nominated for supporting actor, and they showed the scene where he's talking, sort of talking to to the creature, you know, and he just it kind of ends like I guess we're, that's what we both are, just relics, you know, and he mm. and he's talking to this freaky fish guy. The way the way it's constructed, it's a sim- simple thing that lasts maybe like a minute, 
but it, it, it's such a beautiful moment that encapsulates a lot about his character. And even and even just that moment, I think it's kind of a representation of like again the point of the movie is that love can be from anywhere. Love can be anything, whether it's mm. uh, with Giles being gay or with Eliza, you know, falling in love with this river god. You know, it's this it's this idea that love can be anything, and when you find it, it's beautiful. When Eliza kind of tells Zelda and, and Giles about her experiences with the the, the amphibian man. Or even like them talking to him in general, it's not like what you would expect a normal character to be like. Oh my god, I'm gonna stay away from this fish monster. Or oh my god, it's it's treated almost like, like like it's a unique love, but it's treated like love regardless. So like Eliza's talking to Zelda about the first time she had sex with the amphibian man, and instead of her going like just being disgusted by her, just be like, what did you do? She just goes how did that happen? And then she explains it and then she goes, and then she kind of makes a joke about it and then they just go on about their day. And it's just that, that, that level of acceptance. She's a little weirded out, but she's like, all right, okay. She's <laughs> like, like, I guess cool. that works. All right. I'm happy for my coworker. <laughs> like she, she's in love now. Awesome. <laughs> but like, it's just, it's that inherent, like <laughs> that inherent nature is that again, it furthers the point of the movie that love could be anything. And on on that topic, this is going to be the most, this is going to be the, don't listen, kids. We normally say it at the top, but genuinely right now, don't listen, kids, because we're about to talk about something. We're going to talk about sex. (laughs) Sorry. I just feel like when you're staring at me, you're like, he said that. (laughs) No, I just want to see, I'm just curious to see how this goes. I'm I'm like the Michael Jackson meme where I'm just eating popcorn. (laughs) like... Where and we just going like, okay, all right, keep it going. <laughs> well, sex in relation to The Shape of Water is an incredibly important element. And it's an element that a lot of people, even today, shy away from. I mean, they shied away from it in the 50s. People in the 50s were prudes. But the truth be told, sex is, at the end of its day, while it is something that people are afraid to talk about, people are, are kind of stand standoffish a little bit about it, it's a natural human thing, and it can be, if consensual, a beautiful human experience. And that's that's a massive element in this movie. I mean, what's the first thing Eliza does when we meet her? She gets ready for her day. She takes a bath. She touches herself because that's just something, admittedly, normal people do, especially people in her circumstance who are lonely. Again, it's just, you know that kind of just that moment alone and it's not played up as something grotesque it's not played up as something perverted or or over or or just overdone it's genuinely played as something that is just natural that people do it's almost mundane yeah the way especially when you get to when they they're repeating that montage in the movie it just kind of it's like another part of her routine like putting their clothes on or like taking the bus to work and another thing to go off with sex because this movie's called The Shape of Water, right? Mm-hmm. Or t- there's a lot of liquids involved. Sex is fluid exchange. Yeah. At the core of it, basically. That kind of ties into it. The big thing, though, obviously, is the idea of sex, both in a in a evil way, but also in a beautiful way. And, and so, like, in the case of the amphibian creature, we have this consensual, beautiful moment where the two characters, you know, have finally kind of gotten to that point where they they want to embrace each other. They want to consummate this love that they have for each other. 
And so they they treat it as something that is a genuinely beautiful moment. Like the the scene which by the way is the only scene in this entire movie oddly enough that is actually underwater is the scene when she fills up the bath she plugs the like the bathroom up and then fills it up with water and they're floating there. Like she she's naked, he and the and they're just floating in there and they have sex. You don't see it, obviously. You don't ever actually see them have sex. Right. But you do but obviously it's in it's heavily implied and usually you just see her embracing him. Like you just see her hugging him and holding him, like lovingly, and he's holding her back. Because also the amphibian man is a character who is also incredibly lonely. He's he cause because of what he is, he's a fish monster, he's also like looked at from a from a viewpoint of fear that's one element that brings them together to get to that moment where they have sex and they do kind of play it up for laughs a little bit because obviously there's that gossip and you know like i still laugh at that moment when she's describing how his penis comes out like it's like it's just like like she cups her hands then it's like it's like a capsule or <laughs> it's like a sliding door and then it just kind of slides out like it's it's funny but then <laughs> i'm sorry it is you're still staring at me. <laughs> well, I mean, wh- what else do you want me to stare? I'll, I'll stare at um, I'll stare at my shelf right now. Ooh, would you look at that? My my baby Groot Funko Pop looks real neat. We talk about sex. He brings up baby Groot. Babies, babies are made. That's how babies are made. But yeah, that's the that's that's the beautiful aspect of it. So, like on the flip side of that, obviously, there's the there's the dangers and the scariness of sex. Um, you have Strickland's character, who again is like the manly man of the fifties. He has that perfect family, but he's also a dominant man first man. When he when he has sex with his wife, it's not romantic. It's kind of routine. She clearly wants to have sex with him, but he's just like, you know, that's just what I have. I just use what I have. Essentially, is what it feels like. But when he meets Eliza, the fact that she doesn't talk is, disgustingly enough, a turn-on for him. It turns my stomach when he comes up to her. And this is just a, this is just a compliment to Michael Shannon as an amazing villain character. But, like, when he asks her if she squawks a little, it, it's just like, come on. just It just, it just turns your stomach. Oh, yeah. And so just the fact that that alone is the big reason why he has an affection towards her is because she can't talk is disgusting. It's an important element of the movie. Right. But like with both of these movies, they approach the fairy tale in very different but also very beautiful ways. Both, I would say, are very poetic oh, yeah. stories mm-hmm. where, you know, yes, um, Shape of Water is an adult fairy tale, but I also... I also do feel like there are moments where you go, oh, okay, so so that's that's going on, where the creature has the ability to heal, where I could almost see if Guillermo del Toro had, like, a disclaimer, which they do. it's kind of funny because both movies start with a, well, the movie, this one does start with a disclaimer, but it's kind of like a, 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 a palette, it's like, it sets the tone. Yes, it's, it, yes. You know, Giles' narration at the beginning, you, you know, the princess without a voice you know, would would you believe it? Blah blah blah. So the, their approach is similar in that way. Beauty and the Beast, of course, takes place you know in an older period in in French history, and you know is is much more about uh, much more with that kind of stuff and with the castles and things like that. But Shape of Water, as you were saying, in its own unique way is sort of like the hit like the creature like Amphibian Man's cell is very much like, you know, the t- in yes. certain ways, yeah, like yeah. the fairy tale dungeon 
it just does it. It does this story in a setting that is familiar to us because we we have it, it is within living memory. Yes, yeah. You know, people have lived through the fifties and are still alive. So it, it kind of tells it through through that the this fairy tale through that lens sort of. I thought it was kind of interesting because the approach is similar but also quite different in many ways. I even love the fact that the endings are similar in a way. Yeah. So like the like the ending of Beauty and the Beast is they're they're floating up in the sky embraced with each other with smoke everywhere and then in The Shape of Water it ends with them floating underwater and uh she gets her gills activate and um <laughs> and, and, but like they're embracing each other and, and then we get like that very poetic ending note from Giles which fully again fully encapsulates what the point of the movie is. Um, you know, like I said, yeah. The Shape of Water is a heart. Incredible movie, and just there's so much to talk about with this. And I think as a as a double feature, like you could have just had Beauty and the Beast from the '90s with the '40s Beauty and the Beast, or the '90s Beauty and the Beast with Shape of Water. But I feel I feel like I, I really like this because a I like introducing people to things that they may not have necessarily intended to seek out right but also also things that are very artistically satisfying and i think on uh, both ways like yes like with the first movie there's a sort of childlike wonder to it but i think it works i think it still works very well for adults and of course with this move the second movie is very much an adult fairy tale or even just the fact that both of these movies you know, are while they again, while they do have that Beauty and the Beast, you know, typical like maiden and monster kind of narrative going on, they're they're not movies that people would first think of when they think of Beauty and the Beast. Like they think of you know, little town, it's a quiet village. That's my Paige O'Hare is terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, or they would think of more recently. Is that legendary legendary actress and singer Paige O'Hara? Stop massaging my ego, sir. <laughs> uh, but no, like people would normally think of those versions of the Beauty and the Beast. Most people, outside of mostly like more film filmic people, wouldn't think of like the one from the forties or even Shape of Water. Most, admittedly, most people I talk to about Shape of Water are turned off by it simply because of the the surface level aesthetics of it's a fish and and Sally Hawkins getting jiggy with it na 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 <laughs> so but it's also an interesting thing too because the beauty and the beast story as angela lansbury beautifully said it's a tale as old as time and we've been telling the beauty and the beast story ever like essentially ever since we could tell stories even if it wasn't the direct like madame de beaumont or whatever um story that inspired all the other versions on some level, it, it's it's been in our culture forever, but it's also a kind of taboo, you know, to talk about, like, oh, our relationship with the beast or with the other, you know. But it, it also, I think, Shape of Water shows that there's still life in that type of story. There's still something to be said with the beauty and beast story. And I think what the movie, especially this version, says so wonderfully is, like I was saying this whole time, love can be can come from anywhere and love is beautiful in any capacity which is i think ultimately like kind of the the main directive is that love is beautiful in any way you can you can you know whether it's 
man, man, woman, woman, man, woman, trans, trans, like whatever it might be. Just like love, love in, in its purest form is beautiful no matter what shape it takes. Yeah, I think that about um, I think that about wraps it up as far as this conversation goes. Beautifully stated. As always, it's been a lot of fun recording this. What are some of your favorite sort of spins on the Beauty and the Beast story? Let us know on our social medias and all, all that stuff. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We also have Letterbox uh, for, for each of us, you know, and our YouTube channels, Channel 23, Ha Ha Ha, and Silent Film Saturday. But yeah, as, as always, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in and check us out next week. Have a good night, everyone. And at the end of the day, the two podcast princes wanted to thank everyone in the land for listening to their most recent episode. They also wanted to extend their deepest thanks to the bards John and Kenny Armstrong for providing the most magical of melodies, and of course a hint as to their next adventure. In space, or on the beach, no one can hear you scream. And they all lived happily ever after. The end.